Hello everyone, welcome back to the New Hampshire Business Show. My name is Chris Bashana and today we're here with Aaron Day. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's get into this. I don't typically talk politics, I do every once in a while, but it's probably one of my favorite things to talk about. Yep. <laughs> so let's get into it. <laughs> All right, terrific. Well, I mean, I'm running for governor specifically because I'm a serial entrepreneur and I've seen what happens when government overreaches mm. in, into the business sector. So I started my first company when I was 19 which was an internet company that I sold. And then in 20, uh, 2004, I started a healthcare company. And the company was profitable. We were actually helping employers reduce their healthcare costs. Everybody liked it. We were in 43 states. And the company was systematically dismantled by Obamacare, Dodd-Frank, and an overzealous attorney general. And so that got me really amped up. I mean, I guess hell hath no fury like an entrepreneur scorned. And so yeah. I got involved into in political activism uh, and specifically looking at things like like Obamacare and New Hampshire is in a very difficult position right now <clears throat> we're ranked 49th in terms of you know difficulty for starting a business yeah our tax rate is 47th I mean we have this whole business enterprise tax concept which which no one else has so I'm running specifically so that I can reduce the size of government reduce taxes and reduce regulation because there's no reason we can't have a flourishing entrepreneurial environment. Yeah. But we don't and, and no one's really addressing it aggressively. Do you know why they're not even talking about it at all? A variety of different reasons, but I think that the politicians, our current governors, is more interested in the optics of how he goes from governor to being in Washington DC. And that's been a trend in New Hampshire for the last, you know, 30 years or so. Yeah. Usually the governor is considered the big prize, and a lot of people will go maybe to D.C. and then, you know, with an eye towards becoming governor. But we have a weak governor here, and the, and the governor is kind of a stepping stone to to federal office. Yeah, maybe like running for senator or something. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and we've really destroyed our health care system in the, over the last 30 years. And this actually started in 1991. What was surprising about this to me is that it's Republicans that, that did this, because yeah. usually you think of Republicans as being fiscally conservative. But in, in 1991, Judd Gregg was governor, and he had his eye on running for U.S. Senate. But the state was facing a $35 million budget shortfall. There had been kind of a tech shakeout. So, you know, normally you'd have two different options. You could either cut spending, which is the preferred path that I would take, yeah. or, or you could add, you know, income tax or sales tax. Well, he found a third option, which is called Metascam. So what they figured out how to do was take federal matching money that's supposed to go for Medicaid, supposed to go to provide health care for the poor. Mm -hmm. They found a way to divert some of that to our state budget to go for non-healthcare related expenses. Mm -hmm. So that's called Metascam. And we've been doing this for 27 years. Yeah. Essentially stealing money from, from children because this is all goes to the debt and has to be repaid by, by future generations. And so rather than being fiscally conservative, we opted for this Metascam route. This has implications beyond just Medicaid because the way that this works is the only, only hospitals that take Medicaid are eligible for this federal matching money. So when innovative businesses come to New Hampshire, like the Cancer Treatment Centers of America, and they yeah. want to offer a unique approach... Well, they don't take Medicaid patients. So the hospitals are worried that, well, wait, if this Cancer Treatment Centers of America comes in, this is going to eat away further at our business. And so they use a certificate of need board to keep the Cancer Treatment Centers of America out. Yeah. Furthermore, the state has been taking this Medicaid matching money and not reimbursing the 
right amount to the hospitals. So the hospitals end up with a shortfall. Well, what do they do? They have to increase what they charge people that have private insurance. So as a result, everybody's premiums are up last year 44%. Yeah. So this impacts everything. So we don't have the choice that we should have in healthcare. Premiums are out of control. And now 30% of our state budget comes from the federal government through Medicaid. So this whole situation is, is really unacceptable and it impacts every business because healthcare is you know, usually a number two cost item yeah. <laughs> for individuals or businesses. Yeah, and it's like, I don't know, this seems to be a trend I've been seeing where people are like, yeah, we're, we're conservative, we're fiscally conservative, but every, every action they take is like the opposite. Well, this is what Jed, Jed Gregg did. So after implementing Metascam, I, I actually I found, I think, a Washington Post article. He called himself a self-described skinflint and fiscal conservative. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's pretty audacious to where, where you're, when your approach is to take money that has to be repaid by future generations to, to cover your fiscal irresponsibility, to call yourself fiscally irresponsible. But it's happening even now. Yeah. We, so, so we've been doing this with Metascam. For, for 27 years, but then they decided to expand it even further and expand Medicaid. So this was part of Obamacare with this optional part where the states could expand Medicaid. And originally the federal government would, would cover 100% of the cost, but over time that would taper off to 90%. Well, when the Republicans pushed through promoting uh, Medicaid expansion, they, they said, well, the taxpayers won't have to pay a dime. And so they, they came up with a scheme. And the scheme was to take the federal Medicaid money and give it to private insurers instead of going and be, having it dispersed at the state level through Medicaid. And then to pay for that difference, that extra 10%, they were going to tax the insurers and further tax hospitals. I mean, that's, a, that's a ridiculous idea. Well, it turns out that plan was ruled, that was found by HHS to be illegal. So that evaporated. So as early as recently as this last May, we were looking at losing all $400 million a year of the expanded Medicaid money. So what did they come up with as a solution? A 5% tax on alcohol sales. Hmm. So this is literally the scheme that they came up with. And they went out and said, the opioid crisis is a problem. And if we don't expand Medicaid, we won't be able to treat people that are suffering from opioid addiction. So their solution is to tax alcohol, which is actually a bigger health problem in New Hampshire than the opioid crisis. Yeah. Only the government could come up with something like this. In the free market, if you're working on a business, you would never come up with this kind of construction of of incentives. Yeah, because, like you said, there's, for whatever reason, I I keep coming back to this fiscal conservative thing where it's a pretty easy idea to understand a budget. Yep. And to put one together. But the government just can't do that. And I don't get how people can, I guess, separate just the general idea of having a budget and following it to compare to what actually happens. Like, it's, it's insane. Well, I mean, so here's an idea. So let's say that an average family of four yeah. has a $50,000 a year budget. Yeah. And imagine that, you know, you have, an, you have a new kid comes along. So mm-hmm. now you have a five-person family. And all of a sudden, the budget increases to $500,000 a year. Yeah. That's what's happened in the state of New Hampshire over the last 30 years. Yeah. We've actually increased spending by a factor of 10, even though the population has only grown by 18%. That is how out of whack this has become. Yeah. We haven't controlled spending at all. Spending has increased 30 times the rate 
of population increase. Yeah. And so it's just not sustainable. But again, they come. So, so what's the solution? The solution is well, we can't have an income tax or a sales tax. So let's take federal money from Medicaid. Let's become more tied to the federal government, and let's add to the federal deficit. And then we'll call ourselves fiscally conservative. And I, it it only ends one way. I mean, the, 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 this has been tried in the past. In fact, if you look at there's this economist Martin Armstrong is his name, and he came up with a bunch of a, a different models. He actually hired 250 people to go back and look through 6,000 years of coins and currency prices. And what he found is that every every society, every nation goes through a predictable phase. You know, the people in charge, you know, end up trying to provide more services and kind of, you know, bread and circus, you know, buy buy off the votes. And so you actually see the currency being debased, you know, so the amount of money like the British pound has lost 99% of its value. Yeah. Uh, since since inception, so this this happens in every society where you give away more entitlements, and then eventually you either collapse or you go to war to fight over resources. That inevitably is the case. We're not doing anything different here at all. It's exactly the same same playbook, and it only goes in one direction. Yeah, and it's <laughs> literally the talk of you know you said war, which becomes more and more common. <laughs> well, it is, and now we're doing, you know, trade wars, and yeah. you know, which that that uh, you know, so I, I've I've seen interesting arguments on this. I've seen people say, well, yeah, well, we need to we need to have these trade wars, and I said, oh, well, does that mean that New Hampshire should have a ten point two five percent sales tax because that's what Chicago's is, and it would be unfair if we had no tax rate and you know there's a ten point two five percent sales tax in Chicago. Of course, everybody laughs at that. That sounds ridiculous, but that's essentially what we're doing with the trade wars with, yeah. with other countries. And so we're going to, that, that will have negative impact. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it removes that, <coughs> that incentive for coming here. Like I, I read in the newspaper, it was actually very recently that New York and Vermont had an issue with New Hampshire because people were coming here to buy alcohol to go other places because there's no tax, yep. you know, and they were getting upset and they were, you know, arresting people and you know, all that stuff. And I'm like, well, if I was, in any of the other states, it'd be like, well, why are people driving hours and hours and hours to go to New Hampshire? Well, the taxes are less. Well, if we want to increase our own business, well, let's look at our tax rates. Yep. You know, but you lose that in that type of environment where everyone just starts raising their prices ridiculously. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You do. I mean, it's pretty obvious. This is pretty well documented. You know, if you if you tax something, you get less of it. Period. Yeah. I mean, this is always the case and yeah. and yet at, at the same time you know here, here we are over and over again <laughs> so the solution is just low taxes across the board low regulation across the board the government shouldn't be picking winners and losers they yeah. tend to only pick losers and if so if you do that consistently low taxes low regulation and and, and, a, and a small government you'll have a flourishing society that that's yeah. that and that's the direction that we should be taking but boy we've got a mess that we have to unravel yeah from the last 30 years. Yeah. And I was talking to my last guest. He was a, he owns like a music store out in Derry. So I don't know how we got into politics, <laughs> but we were talking about um, government overreach and stuff like that. And it's like that every time when the government gets involved, the system just, I don't know what happens to it, but uh, a good, strong, healthy, open market just crumbles once the government's involved. Like it, it's crazy from health insurance to, I don't know, music apparently. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, everything. And the, and the problem is that the, the two political parties have essentially just become collections of special interests and protected yeah. classes. And what they do is they use our own money to pit us against one another, to yeah. build coalitions so that they can stay in power. 
And so what ends up happening, whether it's energy, healthcare, no matter what the issue is, we get presented at the end of the day with only two solutions. But the reality is what we're missing out on are the opportunities, which are essentially everything else. I mean, we shouldn't be just presented with two opportunities. There's unlimited potential in, in the marketplace. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, but this is the direction that it, that it goes in. And so we've got to, we have to deal with it directly. And I'm, I'm hoping that there's an opportunity to build a third party movement in the state of New Hampshire. I think there is. Um, because New Hampshire is one of those, it's, it seems to be an odd place where at least libertarian ideas seem to be fairly strong. Um, people might still rally behind the D or the R, but the ideas themselves are very libertarian. Yep. So if you could like shake that tree to get them to like kind of fall out of it and realize that there's a better option that's kind of more aligned with what you want anyway, um, there's probably a pretty strong you know, position to be made there. Well, I think you're right. Actually, if you look at the voter registration, there are more undeclared voters mm -hmm. than Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. And so New Hampshire, yeah, it does have, I, I wouldn't say they necessarily identify with the Libertarian Party, but you're, you're right. I've actually seen the data as to where people are in issues. 30 to 35% of the people in the state identify with Libertarian positions. Yeah. But the problem is the two parties will do anything that they can to keep a third party out, out of contention. I yeah. ran for office, I ran for U.S. Senate in, in 2016. And it, running as an independent, I had to actually collect signatures to get on the ballot. So I had yeah. to get 3,000 verified signatures, 1,500 from each congressional district. And that was a nightmare because, I mean, you had the Republican Party didn't want me in the race so badly that they actually sent right-to-know requests to every town clerk in New Hampshire requesting that they get a copy of every petition that was sent in so that they could scrutinize those and keep me off the ballot. A friend of mine who was, was actually a member of the Republican com state committee mm. was kicked off the committee <clears throat> because the chair at the time said that he was publicly supporting me and because I'm not a Republican, he's therefore kind of out as a, a member of the Republican state committee. Well, it turns out he never indicated that he was going to vote for me and he, that ended up getting reversed, but that's how badly... Yeah. You know, the Republicans were willing to go to try to keep me off the ballot and to punish anyone who moved out of, you know, the rank and file Republican yeah. Party. So, yeah. you know, so to me, it's just getting the word out, which is the biggest challenge which is why I'm glad to be on, yeah. on here and, and to try to get in front of as many people as possible, because I think you're right. And I think people even when you look at the election, uh, presidential election in 2016, Republicans voted for anti-establishment is what yeah. they voted for. I, you know, regardless of what you think of Trump or Sanders on their policies, they were the outsiders and they won in the primaries. And yeah. so, you know, New Hampshire, I talked to a lot of people that I wouldn't have thought would necessarily resonate with Trump. And they said, look, we just have to burn it down, you know, from, from within the Republican Party. They, they, were, they just said, look, we're sick of the cronyism. We're sick of the way it's this top-down structure that's been running the same way. And so there, there's, a, there's a big spirit around that idea of, of breaking down the, the establishment on yeah. both sides. Yeah, and it's very, <clears throat> now that you bring up, you know, burning it all down, it's just very weird because that's what everyone always says. They're like, we want to get rid of, you know, so much of the government, like, oversight that's just kind of taken over everything. And, but at the end of the day, they're also afraid to do it. Yeah. Because they're like, oh, how do we solve this problem? I was like, oh, we got to rely on the Republicans or Democrats to fix it. And I'm like, well, no, <laughs> you need to take it even further, go grassroots, you know, kind of do it from your community. But 
there's and the government's done a fantastic job of this over the years of really indoctrinating people on you need us to fix your problems. <laughs> well, they have. Let's look at the opioid crisis. So, yeah. so there's this article in, in, in the Intercept about about Bill Shaheen. There's a super delegate. So his firm Shaheen and Gordon did lobbying for the opioid industry and for pain care. Well, it turns out prescription opioids are responsible for four out of every five you know, addictions that we have to, to opioids in the state. So, so they they help create the problem. And then they have tried to use Medicaid to fund these treatment centers as the solution. So every step along the way, the politicians are making money, the lawyers are making money, lobbyists are making money, but the drug treatment hasn't worked. There was an article in the Union Leader today about the fact that all of these treatment centers have this money, but, but they've done an audit and they don't have any internal controls. There isn't any evidence that this stuff works. And the people that are running the treatment centers are complaining, look, trying to get money out of Medicaid is impossible. The billing systems are impossible to deal with. There's all yeah. this red tape. We don't know how to solve the opioid crisis, right? We don't have a solution. But what that says to me as an entrepreneur is that we need to experiment. Yeah. Well, Medicaid doesn't let you experiment. They say you can only use this money on this subset of things. And in fact, mostly what it entails is substituting one drug for another drug. So you can, if you're, if you're on heroin, well, now you can try Suboxone or Methadone. Yeah. And then, you know, we've got Narcan. So the, so the solution is out there. We don't know what it is, but we're preventing people from exploring what it might be. Absolutely. Like, so kind of a personal story. My brother was a heroin addict for a long time. And he, have you ever heard of his mansion out in Hillsboro? No. Okay, so very, very controversial for the government because they monitor them kind of heavily. But um, so it's, it's essentially a working farm okay. where people go there um to, it's a rehab place, um, but but it's also very religious based. But it's a working farm, so the people that go there to get over addiction, they go, they do like Bible studies and stuff like that. They work the farm, and it's a year long. And by the time you're done with it, you know you've done a lot of counseling because they do a lot of internal counseling and all that type of stuff, and they work. So it almost gives them another purpose because while they're there, they're farming and they're doing you know old school <laughs> work, right. and it. From what I've heard, it has phenomenal results. My brother is, you know, better than he's ever been because he's finally clean, you know. And <clears throat> so I'm not so big on the religious part of it, but the idea that there are other solutions that kind of work, yep. and they do pretty well. Um, it would create its own problem with, like, you could say slave labor or whatever. But uh, so, you know, there's things to be looked at as far as how it works, but there are systems that work phenomenally better that aren't funded by the state. <laughs> well, no, I, I'm, I mean, I'm glad you brought that. I'd like to, I'd like to visit that actually, because yeah. I, because I'm sure this is something the government wouldn't fund and, oh, and, no, and, it, and it wouldn't surprise me that it's the kind of thing that they try to, to shut down. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was, I was talking to somebody that that's worked, you know, in treatment centers, that's worked with the homeless and everything else. And you may remember they had that uh, homeless camp in Manchester that, that they, they, they cleared everybody out mm -hmm. and they had to bring in a hazmat team to clean up, you know, the, the, the place it, to the tune of $85,000. Yeah. Well, you know, somebody that I met said, well, look, this is ridiculous. Why are we spending $85,000? You know, I could pay, you know, there are people that are on welfare by the end of the month, they're running out of money or whatever, pay them two bucks each to, to pick up a bag of trash. And she actually launched this. I just saw a picture of it and they successfully did a round of this. She funded it out of her own pocket, but for a really small amount of money. But of course, as she's been trying this, the cops come in and the cops intervene. You yeah. can't do that. You try to feed a homeless person and you don't have a permit, you're not all, all you know, specially licensed, you, you can't do that. And so, 
government creates problems, subsidizes solutions that don't work, and then bans voluntary solutions. Yeah. And so, so we've got to we've got to fix this. And I, I I'm fascinated by this. I'm going to look into yeah. what you mentioned. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I'm hoping that you, you know me running is focused on a very small subset of issues. In fact, yeah. I'm going to be. I wasn't going to announce this till tomorrow, but I'll, I'll mention what it is. I'm putting together a contract with New Hampshire. I've, our state is in dire financial shape. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've increased spending, you know, tenfold. Again, we are every budget cycle. It's some scam to pull money from somewhere. I mean, we're always teetering on the brink. Yeah. And we have two major problems. We have a pension system that is five and a half billion dollars unfunded. And then we have this Medicaid expansion, which is now 30% of our entire state budget, and it's destroyed the healthcare market. So I, I'm running, and there's not much the governor can do. I mean, a, a lot of people think, New Hampshire is the probably the weakest governor yeah. in, in the country. And so a lot of people look at it as, oh, well, this is like the president, like being the CEO of, of a company. It's, it's nothing like that. We have an executive council that oversees all of the decisions. I, I can't even fully appoint my own cabinet. Veto power is the most important thing that the governor has. So yeah. I'm running to accomplish very specific things. One, I will veto any budget that increases the size of government, mm -hmm. and I will veto any tax. But the other thing is, unless I get a bill that repeals Medicaid expansion and moves our pension system from defined benefit to defined contribution, I will literally veto all other bills. It's because these are the big existential problems. And then beyond that, I will support bills that give power and resources back to the people. So if it's something that gives them their money back, reduces regulation, or that protects individual rights over special interests or, yeah. or, or protected classes, those are the kinds of things I'm going to support because I think our people can solve things voluntarily at the community level, the family level, business level, far better than what the government has been able to, you know, frankly, screw up. So yeah. that's that. That is the gist. So that's an open playbook. That is exactly what I'm going to do. Yeah. And if those things are accomplished, I won't run for re-election. I, I don't want to be a career politician. I don't want, you know, I, I don't even want to be running right now. But frankly, as a serial entrepreneur, I realize if you want to try to innovate in healthcare or any real important big sector, you, you can't do it here. I mean, yeah. your, your hands are tied and the taxes and everything else are too burdensome. Yeah, because I get into this conversation a lot because on this show, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, I talk to a lot of businesses. And so the question always comes up of how do we fix all of it? How do we fix New Hampshire? And because for all the bad things, it's got a lot going for it. You know, the business community is very tight with each other. Like we all know each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's only like I always say from Concord, um, it's only an hour to, the, to any essential any border of the state you right. know so <clears throat> there's a lot of people who know each other we're very tight um so we're always trying to work to fix it now i have, I have some of my own ideas and i hadn't thought about running for office yet but it might happen eventually <laughs> but uh i mean you know. i i would i would do it we need we need pro-business people involved yeah. in, and i would say it's organizing around i mean there are a lot of business groups that end up just fighting for their own crony interests which is which is problematic because obviously you know government money being diverted one area closes off other other opportunities so yeah. i mean i think if we were focused on just getting the government out and, and pushing away these regulations that would be one thing but we also have to do something it doesn't affect this gubernatorial race but local elections 
are absolutely critical. Property yeah. taxes here are, are out of control. Yes. And when I, when I mentioned the issue about the reason I picked on, you know, pensions and, and the healthcare thing is, again, these are the biggest chunks. These are the things that if we don't fix them. But th if you look at property taxes, 56% of property taxes go to public schools. In Bedford, it's 80% of property taxes go to public schools. Now, I'm not saying I'm against all public schools, but there's one slight problem with all of this. Public school attendance has declined 20% in the last 10 years. Yeah. And they have not responded by reducing the size. They've increased the size. So this, you get into these arguments all the time when you say, well, we need to cut the school budget. All of a sudden, you hate children. In fact, I've been the target of ads in races that I wasn't even running for, but people were trying to associate me with somebody else saying that I hate children. Yeah, I have children. I absolutely don't hate children. But but you can't keep on giving money for things that are declining in size. I mean, yeah. it's just that basic. With pensions, I mean, the pension thing is out of control. The person that runs the pension system is, I think, eligible for a quarter of a million dollar yeah. pension. You, you have cops that, you know, again, $130,000 pension. This isn't what people in the private sector are seeing. So this is just about rebalancing. It's not about cutting all of this out, but it's actually, you know, rebalancing it to what people are, are seeing as in the free market. Yeah. And this is actually very interesting. There's a couple things here. One, the property taxes um, is something that I always harp on a lot. Like, so we have a age problem in the state. Yes. <laughs> you know, the younger generations either aren't staying or generally they're just leaving. They don't want to be here. So we have a very... We have an aging population, um, and it's not good, you know, because that, that, again, that raises health care funds and all that stuff. So the biggest problem I see is property taxes, because if you, if you can decrease property taxes, um, you essentially raise the incentive for new property. Because what you need is a lot of entry-level houses, you know, the $100,000, you know, two-bedroom, three-bathroom type houses, <coughs> yep. so that young families will move to the state to work. You know, that's that's kind of the point. Yep. <laughs> and if they address that, because right now, uh, I don't know if you know a whole lot about the the real estate market, but it's it's hot. It's hard to find a property. Yes, yeah. And a lot of that is because <coughs> everyone's moving into those entry-level homes so that they can't find any. So we need more entry-level property that won't crush a beginning family and better jobs. Yep. You know, so I'm I'm working on the job area myself. You know, that's the point of the show is to help businesses in New Hampshire become successful. Yep. That's what that's my my focus. And then you got the whole real estate problem. Um, so I think those two areas would be huge for uh, fixing a lot of these problems. Now there was something else I wanted to say. I forget what it was. What was the other thing we were talking about? Um, I remember. It was uh, well, housing and jobs was was, was, I was guess, what you yeah, said. I guess I work. And property taxes is how we got yeah. into it. Right, I, yeah. I, so well, on, <laughs> on on the on the housing front. So here's something that I that I've heard. I've been talking to a lot of people in the trades, people that are that do landscaping, people that run moving companies, people in construction. They can't find employees. So we have yeah. another problem. So to your point, we have a low unemployment rate. Which is a bit misleading, actually, yeah. because mm -hmm. if you take all of the people that are out of the labor market for long periods of time, um, and then you look at the two areas of biggest growth that we've had in employment are kind of tra our transportation and healthcare, which in some ways are actually funded by the government. So this isn't necessarily private business activity. Yeah. And I've talked to uh, I talked to one guy who said it, it drives him nuts 
when he sees road construction where there are 10 people like next to a pothole or whatever. And he's like, look, these guys are making tons of money. They're getting benefits. I can't hire people because the government is coming in and paying, well, the government is coming in and funding these construction projects, which is taking people out of the labor market. And so I'm hearing now about builders that want to build and literally can't find the people to do the construction. So that's an interesting, interesting problem Yeah, that we have. Um, Anyway, so... Oh, you should remind me what I was going to say. Because we're talking about pensions. Yeah. <laughs> so, I was in the military. So, I find this is very interesting. Um, because when you look at the military, and then you look at, like, police and stuff like that, they're both services. You know, you're serving your community. Yep. In the military, you serve the country. But the expected pay <laughs> is very, very different between those two sections, right? Yep. So... Say in the military when I was in, I think average, you know, as a as an E four was like twenty three hundred dollars a month, about I think. Wow. And then you get, you know, um, I think that's what the pay was. I forget. And then you get your housing benefit depending on where you live, which was for us was about I think it was like thirteen hundred something in that area. So it's not very much. So, but then where they say we make a lot of money is in health insurance, which is Tricare, which is free for us. Um, well, it's not free. We paid for it in our taxes. <laughs> but um, so we don't make a lot of money. So this is where I find it very interesting where people complain about how much firefighters, police, and teachers are supposed to make. Like, well, you have an expectation that you're moving into a service. You know it's not going to pay a ton. You know, so where are these $130,000 a year jobs, you know, coming from where a brand new patrol officer off the street is making 40, 50, 60 plus thousand dollars when you're, like I said, because I, I was told by someone back in, when I was in the army, um, where <coughs> one of the kids was like, we barely make anything. And the, the dude said, this is a service. You are serving your country. You know, we don't have to pay you because you're serving, <laughs> but they do find fulfillment in the fact that you're doing something better than yourself. And then when you're done, move on and use your skills in a career where you can go make money. So I find it, again, like you said, I find it very odd how much these people are expecting to make on the outside. Well, and retiring at 53, and then what's what's even more challenging is then they go and get additional jobs, people with two and three pensions. Yeah. So, so that's the part of it that's just that's gotten out of control, and yeah. and, and other people just don't, don't have access to that. So, yeah, that, I mean, that is a problem, and it's completely – Unbalanced. I was listening to something about Manchester, and they were saying that you know the teachers are working 170 days or something like it was. The, mm-hmm. the number of days isn't even what what was you know originally anticipated. And this stuff at a local level just gets passed because people don't engage in local politics. I mean, in fact, if I would say anything outside the, the gubernatorial thing, is people need to get involved in yeah. local politics. These local races have 20 percent turnout or yeah. lower. So you can make a big difference by getting involved because this is where these contracts are getting negotiated. Yeah. This is where, you know, the teacher contracts and everything else, and, and people just, they aren't paying attention and they're not showing up. And so this is why property taxes are the way that they are. And then oftentimes you don't even find out about it until after the fact. Yeah. And I don't like the incentive. I mean, the law enforcement side, I mean, I, I think the war on drugs has been a, a, a problem and a yeah. mistake. And, and so that's part of the reason. I mean, if you, and if you got rid of that, you'd actually reduce 
the number of people in prison, you'd reduce the number of prison guards that were necessary, you'd reduce the number of police that were necessary, but you get a lot of resistance and pushback, which is why I always thought, like politically, I thought the Democrats were against the war on drugs, but yet when, when Hassan was governor, you know, she was kind of pushed by the police unions to uh, reject decriminalization decriminal, cr of marijuana, which was just surprising because you had Republicans passing for passing decrim and then the Democrat yeah. governor saying no. So. Yeah. The whole war on drugs thing has been just a mess across the board. And as a libertarian, you know, I have some controversial views on how to handle that. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, I don't I don't I've never understood the ideas that like, OK, let's look at the problem. And they're like, wow, it's totally not working. Let's add more government to it. I'm like I, I can't I can't get behind that, and I don't know why that's everyone's solution for it. You know, it's more government money, more regulations, more this, and I'm like, it's not going to help the problem. <laughs> well, I mean, it's I mean, it's jobs. I, mean, I think we spent 1.5 trillion dollars on the war on drugs. There's, yeah. there's this chart, how much we spent over time, and the addiction rate. Yeah. And it has had no impact. Yeah. But the thing that's fascinating about it is the History Channel of all things did a four or five part series on the war on drugs and it's and it is fascinating to see a lot of things that people used to think were conspiracy theories about the government being behind the drug trade so on and so forth turn out to be true yeah. i mean the whole crack you know epidemic was was kind of dr you know, driven behind the scenes by the government as a way to uh generate off the books funding for military excursions i mean this has now happened and this stuff is now documented and yeah. so and so yeah we've got to we, we have to look at this completely differently but there are a lot of people with pensions and vested interests and in keeping things the way they are and yeah, uh, yeah it's a tragic cycle at this yeah point. do you see for a state as small as new hampshire do you see the transparency in the politics as a problem here because it's from what i've seen um either i don't know if it's just that people aren't interested and they're not prying but it all seems very hidden, and there's not a lot of insight into what's going on where it matters. We get a D minus, the State uh, Integrity Institute, I believe it's called. They, they rank states mm -hmm. and, and report on states based on transparency and accountability. New Hampshire gets a D minus. Uh, it's, it's horrible here, and I've dealt with our court system. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of a lot of dealings in, in different in different districts and everything else. There's there's no transparency within our judicial system whatsoever. Um, and what's problematic about it is the government's not going to fix itself either on this. This is something where to fix this, this needs to be citizen driven. I think from my perspective. You know, if you would just put together a Yelp for, for lawyers and judges uh, that was citizen-driven, so you know, I'm serious, that, that would be eye-opening. I don't know if you said there was a, recently a judge, Judge Moore, uh, who was from Bedford but was, uh, you know, presiding in, in Nashville. He resigned because he falsified his own evaluations. Um, and so then I looked this up. I'm like, okay, well, what kind of evaluations are these? And so you look at how these judges are rated. So they apparently collect this information, but what they report is the aggregate information. So what you'll see back is the average score for a judge is 3.1 on the dimension of did they show up for court on time? Were, hmm. You know, was their demeanor, like, like not issues that actually get to transparency or corruption. They yeah. just report on absolute fluff. And so there are all kinds of issues even at the state legislature with conflict of interest. I mean, the issue is you can have a conflict. You just have to, you know, tell people about it in advance, but it doesn't pry you away. 
there was a, somebody, uh, Representative Joe Lachance, who, who was a first-term state rep, ended up being the prime co-sponsor of Medicaid expansion, a multi-billion-dollar you know billion dollar piece of legislation. Again, first, first time out of, how is he the prime you know, co-sponsor? It didn't really make sense. He's on the board of directors of the Elliott Hospital. How does that kind of, that kind of thing happens all of the time? Energy. So I don't know if you saw this, Eversource, energy costs going up 19.1%. Yeah. Chris Sununu has taken $50,000 from Eversource. His brothers work on a company called Profile Strategy Group that I understand, I believe, is affiliated in some way with Eversource. Uh, the Josiah Bartlett Center uh, think tank has two Sununu family members on the board, and they put out think tank information that kind of, kind of drives this energy policy. How how is he deciding? I, there's such a clear conflict of interest. Yeah, uh, campaign finance is another one. I mean, you, you do report campaign finance stuff, but but I've not seen the AG take any kind of action. People have violated campaign finance stuff all over the map. I mean, it's kind of a joke in terms of of enforcement. And then the way people actually report it is they handwrite what all their contributions are and then send it in. And so what you see on the screen is I can't make that out. You can't really. Yeah. I mean, this stuff should be searchable. And, and, and openly transparent, and, and, and none of it is. And this even feeds into right-to-know requests. If you want to try to find out information from the government, those laws are getting better so that you can actually, you know, inquire as to what's going on with some mm-hmm. of these things. But, but, yeah, this is a major problem, and it needs to be dealt with by the citizens. So I, we can't count on the government to audit, audit themselves. Yeah, and it's kind of like, funny because the amount of scrutiny – just going to a national level that the media gives the president for every little freaking thing. Um, it's a little excessive, but I kind of like it to an extent. We need to see that at a smaller level. Um, I had a, ri- a while ago, I had considered going into politics and doing a politics show like that, where we could really get into New Hampshire politics and like, so they couldn't hide anything. Um, I haven't done it. I'm still pushing people to do it. <laughs> so I think it's needed. It is needed. Because, like wh- like I said, with the scrutiny the national media gives the president, people in New Hampshire should be giving our government to. They, they should be. And actually, it's it's completely dissipated. To the extent that we ever had any, there's no investigative journalism yeah. going on now. I mean, you see the layoffs, obviously, at, at the papers. And so even these papers are running on skeleton crews. But, but when you read a story... These things are press releases. There's not a lot of investigation that goes into to any of this. Yeah. And and so yeah, we we absolutely need a, a complete and kind of an investigative side to this. Yeah. Just to keep people aware of what's going on. Yeah. And I think when when they know they're not being looked at, it's when people get a little fishy with the numbers, you know, and putting that pressure back on people could be good. It could be. I, I think <laughs> it's the o- I think it's the only <laughs> thing that will work yeah. because. Particularly at the local level, I mean, there is so much corruption at the local level because nobody's paying attention. Yeah. And so this just happens. And so you start looking at, well, how do these local contracts happen? Why did this deal happen and, and not this? And you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of digging to find out that there's something wrong. It's just hard to get people engaged to, to look into it. Yeah. But, pretty good. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you're actually interested in pursuing that, let me know because I, I know some people that have also that are interested in it. it's just a matter of actually putting it together and getting yeah. it getting it done. I definitely like like I said uh once I especially when, if I whenever I get my new studio I'll definitely be looking to do a few more things I think politics is one of the ones where I'm like I might never get into politics but 
I can do it from my end. <laughs> yeah. Well, well I, I will tell you one, one area that, I mean, as a serial entrepreneur, one area that I think should be a highlight for New Hampshire is you know, cryptocurrency and, and blockchain yeah. technology. Um, I'm, I'm part of the Free State. I moved here as part of the Free State Project in, mm -hmm. in 2009. Yeah. The, the Free State Project, we've been taking Bitcoin since 2011. There are a ton. In fact, New Hampshire has the highest per capita Bitcoin usage in the country. Yeah. And there are startups, um, some in Portsmouth uh, and, and some kind of, you know, all, all over the place working on not just cryptocurrency, but how to use blockchain technology to solve problems. And you, I mean, you mentioned earlier, there's kind of this idea of business people want to get together and figure out how to solve some of these problems. That's what's the, the key about blockchain technology is it allows you to transact and do business with somebody where you don't have to, tr you don't have to have a trusted third party intermediary because you can actually you know, conduct your transactions on this blockchain, which is, which is, you know, kind of a cryptographic way of validating transactions without having to have this intermediary. Well, yeah. if you can start, you know, if you think about bankers, lawyers, politicians, the people that are middlemen, that's typically where you have a lot of cronyism and corruption. If you can use some of these decentralizing technologies, it opens up all kinds of opportunities. And, yeah. I, and I hope New Hampshire ends up being uh, the leader on that. And there's one company in particular, have you heard of Ravencoin? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, Ravencoin is essentially, it's a, it's a way of, it's going to be a platform that allows you to raise money, essentially, using, you know, uh, security tokens. And so right now, people are using Ethereum, people are using different types of technology mm -hmm. to raise money, but they're not, they don't pass SEC muster. Yeah. Ravencoin is going to be a way for you to do that, where, you know, you can actually raise money legally, but much more efficiently. And so mm -hmm. I, I hope, you know, I hope Ravencoin is used here to help small businesses. That'd be cool to check out. So. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I think off of, uh, was it off of coins for a second, have you heard of health shares? Yes. Okay. I'm not very familiar with them. I actually only learned about this a couple of days ago. <laughs> um, how do you see that working out in New Hampshire? Well, so I, I am working on a company Salu, that this, okay. that's, that's in this space. I think you can decentralize the delivery and financing of healthcare. Yeah. Um, one of the big problems and one of the big growth areas is in, in the administration of healthcare. In fact, insurance is completely broken. The way insurance insurance companies aren't really health insurance companies aren't really businesses. The way they make money is by hiding pricing and by being inefficient at processing payments. I mean, they actually it's the float on collecting the premiums and paying out the claims. Mm -hmm. That float is where they make most of their money. Hmm. And in fact, they have the systems of arbitrarily rejecting claims so that they can hold on to more of that money. They're able to do this because they're essentially given a you know state license to be able to do this. The state insurance commissioner carries a lot of weight, which is why it's hard to get new entrants in here. Yeah. But insurance companies are told how much money they have to have in reserve, what the difference is that they can charge between different groups for different things, what they have to offer as services, that's not really a business. And, yeah. and, if you make, and if you're ultimately making money by hiding your pricing and then being inefficient at processing payments, do we really need that to be the way we're running our healthcare system? So, I mean, you could use a combination of cryptocurrency and other things to get insurance out of it altogether, but then figure out ways to, for people to pool their risk uh, in all kinds of new and interesting combinations yeah. and, and crowdsource you know, the funding of healthcare. My, um, my mom passed away from cancer. She, uh, like six years ago and she didn't have insurance. Um, and so I went in and actually negotiated 
cash payments. So she, we're dealing with a radiologist and oncologist and everything else and trying to figure out how much this costs. And I'm talking to the doctor, I'm like, oh, so how much does this cost? They have no idea how much it costs. Yeah. But it turns out if you're paying cash, you can get, on average, a 50% discount on what insurance is billed. So if you actually think about it, by providing just price transparency mm-hmm. and getting this monstrosity out of the billing, you might be able to cut a significant portion out of, out of healthcare costs. And you can actually shop for treatment options based on quality and based on price, which amazingly you can't do now. Yeah. So kind of funny you bring this up. Um, I just had a fourth kid a couple weeks ago, so about a month. And we just got the bill from the hospital. <coughs> so I found that I found this interesting because because they billed us and because uh, she doesn't officially have insurance yet, but she will shortly and all stuff. So they billed it out. So they sent us a, a breakdown of what everything cost. So I found this interesting because it was like I think six to seven thousand dollars, something in that range. And right off the top, there's a there's an itemized line. They said for what was it? non-insured person and they cut 60% of the cost. Wow. So yep. it dropped down to about $2,500. So I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, so there's your inflated random number that, okay, if you're an insurance company, we're going to charge you seven. <laughs> yep. But because you don't have insurance, we'll, we'll be a little more realistic with, with the actual cost. Yep. And I'm like, how are you doing this? <laughs> like, how is that legal? <laughs> well, and you know what? I, to be honest, this part of this ties back into this meta scam and what they've been doing. Yeah. Because so in order for the state to be able to take money to cover their budget shortfall, they've put the hospitals in a situation where for every Medicaid patient, they're not being reimbursed enough money. And so what that means is you have insurance. Boom. Yeah. You're going to get charged more money for it. Yeah, it's freaking crazy. And so, <coughs> kind of back on what we were talking about, about health shares, <clears throat> for those who don't know what that is, we are kind of talking about it. It's where you kind of pool your risk against a bunch of people. Um, I actually found out there's a small business one here in New Hampshire, which is how I found out about it. So, all small entrepreneurs can sign on to this one health share, and it's kind of that type of thing. And that's what I was like. That's a really cool option. I had no idea those types of things existed. So what I liked about it is, even in a market that's super regulated by the government, you know, entrepreneurism can flourish. <laughs> it can flourish. I'd be interested in learning more about that because yeah. that's something. Cause if you could add cryptocurrency on top of that model, too, oh, be you, crazy. You, get, yeah. you get more efficiency with with payments and everything else. And so yeah. it, it is possible. But but I'll tell you what the state will do they'll use the certificate of need they will use ways to try to shut that down yeah and that's the travesty in all of this the travesty is if you think about health care again republican democrat we you know we have these what are the two solutions that the parties offer well the democrats are offering medicare for all which you know i don't know how you take a multi-trillion dollar unfunded liability and expand it and think that's a good idea <laughs> uh, and then the, but the republicans will come in and say well you should be able to buy insurance across state lines well the reason we have the health insurance system that we have now goes back to World War II. We had wage freezes. And so it, this is particularly used by GM. The only way you could entice employees was by offering fringe benefits. And the fringe yep. benefit that they could use competitively was, was health insurance. Well, 75 years later, we haven't changed from that system. So all the way back to World War II, we now have a, a health insurance system that's tied to the employer for no other reason than that 75 years ago. So, I mean, can you imagine any other industry that was frozen in time structurally like that? I mean, imagine, you know, imagine what 
computers would be like or any consumer product if, if, if you were stuck into that kind of, of a regulatory pattern. Yeah, and it's funny you say that because that happens all the time. Like, they institute something and the general population now sees it as, no, no, that's that's our right. We deserve that. And it just stays. Yep. <laughs> like, like, taxes, they started charging us taxes way back when, and that never left. And then as soon as they figure out how they can use it to make money, it stays. Like, they, that's why... I'm always on the side of no, no, I'm like no. Let's let's not have the government do anything with it because any oh, it's only temporary does not say temporary. Like as soon as that becomes a benefit to somebody, there are there are groups that come in that no, that can't go away, and there's huge fights for it. No, there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. That's oh my like, god, is, yeah. Is 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 a, but if I, I actually saw a chart that showed the cost of various items, and inflation. And so, you know, TVs and cars and everything, yeah. has go, they, they've gone down. Healthcare and education and textbooks, even more than, than any of that, well, have, have absolutely skyrocketed. Yeah. Um, and there's something interesting about healthcare. If you look at all of healthcare costs skyrocketed, except cosmetic surgery and LASIK. Yes. So to the extent that these are things outside of this ecosystem of government funding and insurance and everything else, the price has actually dropped. Yep. Getting people to understand that this is the biggest challenge is getting people to understand that there, that the options outside of what you're being presented with are massive. How do you describe the full potential of what the market can do mm-hmm. where people understand it? Because it's not tangible. It's just this is what millions of people can do working voluntarily. I can't tell you exactly what it's going to be, mm-hmm. but it's what's brought us all of the wonder and innovation yeah. that, that we currently have. And so trying to get that get that message out there is, is yeah. important. Yeah, I think it's the struggle we, we both constantly go down. Because you're right, because um, that's one of the points I was going to bring up. <coughs> you know, any, any medical thing that's not covered by government money, like, becomes more affordable over time as they get better at it and there's open competition for it. You step the government in in its place to kind of like regulate things. Costs just go nuts. Yep. You know, anytime something comes in to subsidize that, it's just it's it's a mess. <laughs> no, I mean it's a mess. And even you look at things like, uh, how is it that we spend twenty percent of the GDP on healthcare and we've had two years of declining life expectancy? Yeah. How is that even possible? And I'm not even I won't go into a lot of detail, but but the FDA has done more to you know slow the process of innovation and this is a perfect example of the idea of regulatory capture it's the big pharma companies that basically control the fda that the it's a revolving door of people from the fda to biotech companies in fact Hmm. if you come out of the fda into a big pharma company you're making a million dollars a year plus this is this is now one of the most highly paid you know jobs within the biotech world and so which, by the way, the same is true with Wall Street and the SEC. It's this kind of cronyism that if you actually got people say, well, what would you do if you didn't have government regulating these things? I don't know. Flourish. Things would probably be cheaper mm-hmm. and more readily available. Yeah. And my, <coughs> I make this point all the time, and especially with my last guest, who I don't know if I made it on camera or not. Just because the government isn't regulating it doesn't mean it, it doesn't have to be regulated. Right. Like, uh, my best example is look at um, athletic training. You know, it's not it's not regulated by any form of government or anything like that. So the government doesn't really say you have to have a license to athletically train somebody. But gyms have there are athletic certificates offered 
you know, courses to train people. And most gyms will only hire people certified by, you know, those types of institutions. So <laughs> you can put into place, say, what they, one person I heard, they say, you know, for building new, new houses, there's government regulations on how to do that. And some of them are absolutely absurd. Oh, yeah. The booklet, yeah. So what, the, what they say is if you didn't have regulations, they would build awful houses and they'd be falling on people. But no, but if there were regulatory agencies that were, you know, civilian ran so that you knew when you bought a house, okay, this house um, was built following this company's regulations, okay, you know that. You know that company is, you know, essentially they put their stamp on there for liability. So, but the government doesn't have to be involved. <laughs> no, it doesn't have to be involved. And that would carry through because then if you wanted to get insurance in the private market, the insurance in the private market would only accept houses that were built using these private standards. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, and if someone was like, oh, we're moving to a house that was built by this dude down the road, it has none of the qualifications of these other places. That is their choice to make that decision. You know, and it doesn't have to be the government's involved in it. It's well, well, crazy. Well, there's this, there's this <laughs> idea somehow that people that go into business are, are in it just to make a quick buck yeah. and, and have no concern for for their customers. That's not the way you build a successful business. You make a successful business by voluntarily engaging in trade over the long term. That's how you become a successful business. Yeah. So, but somehow there's it's this presentation that, well, if you're in business, you just basically want to steal from me, which mm -hmm. which is which is exactly the opposite of, yeah. of what's going on. And I, I was involved with a clean tech startup uh, for a while, working on some innovative products. Uh, I mean, the idea was to be able to, at some point, you know, call the electric company and say, look, I'm completely off the grid. So, I mean, imagine you've got a carport with solar panels yeah. and you have, you know, a, a battery system in the, in the basement that can actually hold the solar energy. And then you start converting appliances like water heaters uh, you replace all of your lights with, with LEDs and everything else, it, and something like that would be possible. What I found challenging about it was when the government comes in and, and provides subsidies because they end up subsidizing, you know, a GE light bulb, that the kind the CFC light bulbs where if you drop them, you have to ha call in somebody with a hazmat suit because there's mercury in there. Those are the products that the government ends up subsidizing. The energy situation would be solved without no government intervention is needed. To come up with new solutions for energy, and yeah. it's 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 the roadblocks that they put up that have created the issues that we have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I like it. Right. So I'm, I think we could do this all day, yep. but uh, we're running at about an hour now. So okay. um, we'll uh, we'll leave that there. So people that want to learn a little more about your platform, get in touch with you. How do they do it? Uh, www.day4nh.co is the best place and you can also find me on on facebook i'm i'm pretty available on social media pretty cool awesome thank you for right. joining me it's been thank a lot you. of fun it's been great thanks thank you guys so much for watching we're gonna have the last word from our sponsors and everyone have a great day That's it for today, everyone, but it doesn't have to end there. Head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or iHeartRadio to get more from New Hampshire's top entrepreneurs.